do I even want to? And what do I do with this fact that I'm in love with you and all this kind of stuff? So, yeah, that was a, a tumultuous time, I will say, uh, up until around 18, 19. And then, again, that's the, the end of that relationship, which ended for other reasons, is very tied in for me to that beginning of, okay, I will now be... I now want to follow Jesus. I'm going to spend time with him every day. I'm, the the My sexuality kind of questions and wrestling, that was such a key thing for me in do I want to follow Jesus or not because I needed to figure out what that would look like. So, yeah, so in your teen years, those two elements of life, wanting to follow Jesus and become more serious about that, yeah. being aware of your sexuality, entering into relationships and stuff were there. How then within that, how did you learn what the Bible says and I guess, how did you feel about that? How did yeah. you process that and what that meant for you? Yeah. Um, so at first, all I had were what are sometimes called the clobber passages, which is a fun name. Um, so it's the five or six bits in the Bible that specifically refer to same-sex relationships or, or sexual relationships. Um, and that was really all I, all I knew. And basically, they all said, don't do it. And that's, that's all I had. And so that... While in one sense that was enough for me, because I was like, okay, God seems to have said this. And if God has said it, he's God, and I'm not, and he knows what he's doing, so okay, I'll, I'll obey God in it, is kind of the conclusion that I came to. But emotionally, that's a lot harder. If someone just says, don't do it, and you're, you don't know why or anything, that is obviously a tricky thing then to, to obey them. So over the last, I don't know how many years, I've just explored this stuff more and asked more questions. Um, I found the Living Out website very helpful before I actually started working for them. Um, and just understanding a lot of what Anne unpacked for us on Tuesday, if you were here for that. If not, you can listen back to the recording. It's already up. Uh, but just this, the Bible has this bigger story about sexuality, and it is good news. And it is good news for us, no matter if we're gay or straight or single or married or whatever we've gone through in our lives, it's really, really good. And so, yeah, I've come from that place of, oh, the Bible only seems to have a few sentences about this and they're all negative, through to, this is actually tied up in the whole biblical story and there's some really, really good stuff and it is life-giving for me and I actually love it and I think it's good news and now I spend my life talking about it. So, here we are. You said a bit there yeah, about the goodness of what the Bible says and coming to see that and experience that. Just talk a bit more about what gives you confidence in, I guess, both the goodness of God, but also the goodness of what he says in the Bible, that it's good, that it's trustworthy. Yeah. It's his track record. So, like, when I look through the Bible, or I listen to people in my church talking about what God has done in their lives, or just even in my own life, I have a, a, a journal, um, and I have a stack of journals at home that I've been writing in for, like, 10 years. It's, it's about that high. Um, and in that, again, just all of these places, there's story after story after story after story of God being faithful and God promising something and then doing it, of God being exactly who he says he is. Like, I just see it in all of these different places. He has never broken a promise. He has never not been faithful. He has never acted in a way that is counter to the character that he's revealed to us in Scripture. And so, yeah, looking at all of those things and just seeing his consistency and his faithfulness, I go... He has never changed. I don't think he's going to in the future. I think I can continue to trust him and trust what he says. He's still going to be the same God. So good. And so, boys, it's so easy to drift through life and kind of not stop and reflect and think of all the things that God has done. And actually, when we're in difficult things then and we're wrestling with big questions, actually, to be able to look back and think, oh, yeah, God showed his goodness here and here, and I experienced that here and here, it strengthens us, helps us to keep going forward. 
Brilliant, thank you. Do you want to get, uh, we're going to hear a bit from Ashley. She's going to just help us think about this theme of following Jesus is worth it. Even if actually there's big costs, as maybe for some of us in relation to our sexuality, there will be in following Jesus. For all of us in different ways there will be. Why is it we believe that that is worth it in whatever way that kind of looks like, however it works for us? So over to Ashley for that. Thank you very much. I don't really remember what I put on my slides, so we'll see how this goes. Okay, following Jesus is worth it. To know whether this statement is true, I think we need to understand what the cost is and what the gain is. So is in following Jesus, there is a cost, but in following Jesus, we also gain something. And is what we gain better than what we're losing? That's what we're talking about today. So we will start off by talking about the cost specifically in terms of sexuality. So by following Jesus as a single, same-sex attracted person, what am I losing? The first obvious thing is sex. So because I believe the only context for sex is marriage, and I am not married, I'm not having sex. That is a thing that I lose as a single person who is following Jesus. The second thing you could add to that list is marriage, probably for me. I said I am bisexual, I'm attracted to both men and women. I believe that marriage is for one man and one woman. Um, I also said my, the kind of tendency of my attractions is weighted more towards women. So for me, I would be actually quite surprised if I ended up married to a man. It's not outside the realm of possibilities, but in all likelihood, for me, probably, and for many same-sex attracted Christians, marriage is something that we are not going to be engaging in as followers of Jesus. So these are two things that I lose by following Jesus because of what I believe he says about sex and sexuality. I'm not having sex, I'm not getting married. But some people might add other things to this list. Some people might say, I'm losing out on family or on intimacy. Some people might say, I am condemning myself to a life of unhappiness or unfulfillment that I'm suppressing or ignoring who I really am. I think the Living Out team have done a great job this week just explaining some of these things, why obeying Jesus in our sexuality doesn't mean we lose out on them. So Andrew spoke yesterday about how following Jesus doesn't mean that we suppress or ignore who we are, but Jesus actually helps us to be true to ourselves. Jeanette and the team spoke on Wednesday about how singleness is actually a good gift. It is a gift just as good as the gift of marriage. It's not a second-rate way of existing. And Anne spoke on Tuesday, as I said, about how the Bible's teaching on sexuality is actually life-giving. It is full of hope and full of joy for us as same-sex attracted single people just as much as for someone who is happily married to someone of the opposite sex. And throughout the week, in various different ways, we have all been sharing about how family and intimacy and happiness are present in our lives. Even though we're all single and we're celibate, we're not having sex, because those things are not exclusively found in sexual and romantic relationships. Sex is not ultimate. It is not the pinnacle of human experience, and it is not the only form of love or intimacy. Singleness is good. Family and happiness are possible outside of romantic and sexual relationships. Marriage itself is only a temporary signpost to the ultimate marriage between God and his people that we will all one day get to enjoy forever. So these are the kind of things we've been talking about this week. I'm not going to go back over them again in detail. Do listen back to those talks or have a look at the Living Out website if you need a bit more on some of those. So this is where we end up. Yes, I am not enjoying sex and marriage now. I'm losing out in that sense because I follow Jesus. 
And while that can be difficult to deny those desires, it can be painful sometimes to not have these relationships or experiences. It is not the earth-shattering loss of everything that the world would have us believe that it is. I do think, though, there is a loss of that magnitude involved in following Jesus. There is a, a deeper, greater cost than denying my sexual desires, and it is this. I am no longer able to do whatever I want. When I follow Jesus, I'm no longer my own. I'm no longer free to indulge my every whim. My life belongs to him. So my mind, my heart, my body, my actions, my decisions, my work, my rest, all of it, all of me, now belongs to Jesus. And this is far bigger than just sexuality. This is everything. And this is the deal for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus himself said it. We're going to look at Luke 9. He said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So let's just walk through this. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. Come and die. That is a pretty heavy cost. That's not just sexual experiences or just some of my desires. That is everything. Following Jesus will cost you everything. It will be like death. But try to save your own life, he says. Whatever that looks like, it might be being as good as you can or enjoying as much as you can in this life or whatever it looks like for you to hunt for purpose and joy and fulfillment. Try to do that on your own and it will kill you anyway. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. So go Jesus' way and we are dead. Go our own way and we're dead. It's not looking good, is it? Thankfully, he kept talking. The thing about following Jesus into death is that resurrection is waiting on the other side. Jesus died and rose again so that we could tread that path after him. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Lose your life for him. Give it all to him. Lay down all your desires and all yourself and all your life, and for the first time, you will really live. This is what we gain by following Jesus. Going our own way isn't worth it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? We could have everything. We could gain everything we ever wanted, even the whole world, but still lose ourselves, still lose everything, still ultimately die. And I'm not talking about dying like just your body shutting down. I'm talking about the slow death of every day, the harsh monotony of knowing that nothing really matters. Or perhaps you try your hardest to do the right thing, to make the world a better place, but you're like a fly buzzing against a window. You just keep hitting the limitations of your own pride and self-interest. And over the years, it's like you only grow more selfish, more cruel, more bitter, more twisted. You may have tons of money, or tons of sex, or tons of success, or tons of whatever it is you choose to spend your life on, but none of it is going to be enough. None of it will satisfy. And then one day you'll stop breathing, You'll end in a grave just like everybody else and all of your comforts and distractions and treasures will be forever lost to you. And then beyond that, beyond the grave, there's true death. Separation from God forever. Separation from the one who is life, who is light, who is love. 
we could try to save our own lives and lose them. Or we could give everything, give everything we've ever wanted, give our whole selves to Jesus, and we live. And I'm not talking about living, like just continuing to breathe. I'm talking about living like there's a deep well of joy and hope and contentment and freedom on the inside. I'm talking about living like it actually matters, like our choices actually mean something and our lives make a difference. I'm talking about knowing the one that your soul was formed for and being loved so completely by him that it makes you whole. And when you die, it's not true death. It doesn't stick. Because you are united with the one who is alive forever and ever and death doesn't get to hold you. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Live your own way on your own terms. Do what you think is best and you will die. But live his way. Obey him. Trust him. And you will live. Is following Jesus worth it? So we've talked about the cost, which is everything. And we've started to look at what we gain, which is even more. But what we gain from following Jesus is actually better than this real and eternal life. It's better better than this amazing gift is the giver himself. This life is so good because we get to share it with him. Following Jesus is worth it because we get Jesus. We get to know him. We get to live our lives with him and be with him forever. This is the thing that keeps me going when I'm finding things hard, whether that's because of my sexuality or because life is just tough. It's that I get Jesus. This rich, joyful uh, life that he offers, it's available to me all the time, but it's not my lived experience 100% of the time. It will be one day. I am very much looking forward to that day. But for right now, I and the people and the world around me are still broken. They're still warped by sin. So sometimes life still sucks. So when this kind of life that I've been talking about is not my lived experience... What is it that keeps me going? What makes following Jesus worth it then? And the answer is what the thing that is my experience 100% of the time, which is Jesus. I get Jesus. And that might not sound like a very exciting prospect if you don't know what he's like. So we're just going to take a bit of time to explore Jesus a little bit. I'm going to go to three different bits of the Bible to help us see a bit more of what Jesus is like. Philippians 2. I love Philippians 2. I've only given you a little bit of it, but go read it. It's great. Paul, talking about Jesus, says this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is God. He is the supreme being, the highest, most awesome, most majestic one in the universe. He has all power, all authority, He owns everything. He does whatever he chooses. No one can challenge him. No one can question him. He is God. And yet he chooses to let go of his privileges, let go of his rights as God and become human. He goes from the heights of glory to the mess of childbirth in a room full of stinking animals. He goes from being the one who knows and sustains all things to not even being able to feed himself. He grows up the child of peasants in a small town in the middle of nowhere, training as a carpenter, getting splinters in his fingers. The writer Kirsten Burkett puts it like this. 
the immortal God reduced himself to the body of a helpless infant and lived a human life in a sinful world. The immensely rich became poor. He is the unlimited, all-powerful God. The most luxurious space-age super-yacht penthouse indulgence of a superior tycoon would be to him filthy squalor and an unbearable limitation in power. Think what it might be like for you to become a quadriplegic in the back alleys of some drug-ridden, third-world, lawless ghetto. That starts to suggest, possibly, just some small part of what it might be like for eternal, omnipotent God to become human. Paul carries on, as if that was not enough. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We are all already obedient to death. We will die. We have no choice. Death will call our name and we will come running. But Jesus was superior to death. For all eternity, death never knew him. Death never had any hold over him. And yet he chose to become subject to death, to this thing he'd been superior over for all eternity. The high and holy God becomes obedient to it. Even the shameful and excruciating kind of death that is death on a cross. All of that to save us. What kind of person does that? What kind of person is Jesus? He must be so incredibly selfless, impossibly generous. He must love us wildly. He must be so, so, so kind. This is who we get to know. Surely this Jesus is better than my sexuality. He's better even than doing whatever I want. Surely this Jesus who gave up everything for me is worth me giving up everything for. Let's keep learning more about him. Matthew 14. So Jesus has just learned that his cousin, John, has been executed. And not because John had done anything wrong that was worthy of execution, but because he had irritated the wrong people. So Jesus is in mourning. His cousin, his friend, has just been unjustly killed. Matthew tells us, when Jesus heard what had happened he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He wants to be alone. He wants to mourn his cousin to begin to process the loss, maybe to cry out to his father for justice. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, what would you do at this point? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You are grieving. You are overwhelmed with sorrow. You just want to hide and cry and be alone but you are chased by literally thousands and thousands of people who all want something from you. What would you do? I think I would yell at them all to go away. I think I would scream at them that I had absolutely nothing left to give. Jesus is not like me. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. The word compassion in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was originally written in, the word has this sense of gut-wrenching emotion. Jesus physically feels it in the pit of his stomach, this deep love that urges him to act. When he sees the crowds, Jesus isn't overwhelmed by his own emotion, by his own pain. He is overcome by theirs. He has so much love, so much compassion for them. So rather than running away or telling them to leave, he heals all of their sick. He spends the entire day with them, and then he feeds them by a miracle so they don't have to go home hungry. 
Do you see the kindness, the beauty, the love of Jesus? When we follow him, we're not like fans of a celebrity who never actually get to meet them. We're not like soldiers whose name the army general never actually knows. When we follow Jesus, we get to know him intimately. We get to be close to him. These people had the privilege of a few moments face-to-face with Jesus as he touched them and healed their bodies and their minds. They had the privilege, maybe just once, of hearing him teach these true life-giving things that would help them to flourish. We are so much more blessed and privileged than they were. By his spirit, Jesus is now with his followers all the time. He is with me always. If you follow him, he is with you always. Every single day, we get to see and enjoy his kindness, his love, his beauty. This is what we gain by following Jesus. This is who we get to know. This is a person who I think is worth giving everything to know. Last passage we're going to look at, Revelation 5. The book of Revelation gets a bad press sometimes because it can be confusing. It is packed with all these symbols and imagery that don't make immediate sense to us. But as a book, it is so worth taking the time to understand because there is some gold in here. Chapter 5. John has just described, John is the writer, just described the throne room of heaven. It's this incredible scene. You've got God sitting on his throne being worshipped by all creation. And then he says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So this scroll is a symbol of God's plans for the earth, his just judgments bringing an end to sin and suffering and death forever and ushering in a new creation, a new kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy. We want these seals broken and the scroll opened. We want God's plans to unfold on the earth. That's what we're meant to get. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. There is no one worthy. No one. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, we might phrase that as in all creation, in the entire universe, across all of time, no one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is able to bring about the end to sin and suffering, to bring in the glorious new creation that the prophets have been promising since the start of the Bible. John's reaction is appropriate. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders, that's one of the people in the throne room who represent the people of God, he said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb There it is. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Again, those are representatives for all of creation and all of God's people. Someone is worthy. What glorious relief. Someone can open this scroll and bring about all the goodness of God's kingdom. Weirdly, it's a lion who also somehow looks like a slaughtered lamb. And you might be unsurprised to hear that that is all picture language for Jesus. It is drawing on threads from throughout the Bible. Jesus is the one, the only one in all creation, in all the universe, who is worthy. 
I don't trust the PowerPoint anymore. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the rest of the chapter is this beautiful cry of praise from every single corner of creation, delighting in and worshipping Jesus, this mighty lion who chose to die so that we could be brought back out of slavery and into freedom, so that we could be brought from death and darkness into light and life. What I want you to get here is that Jesus is not just some great guy. He is the one who is worthy of the worship of every single thing that was ever made. He is the crowning glory. He is the pinnacle of it all. And this one, this God, this being that the whole universe praises and adores, this is the Jesus that we get to know. He's the one who took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He is the kind healer who loved people so beautifully when his own heart was broken. He's the one who became obedient to death on a cross and who leads us through death into resurrection. This is the Jesus we get to know deeply and intimately forever. When I look at Jesus, when I see his beauty and his holiness, his glory, his grace, his love, his generosity, and then I look back at my sexuality, there's just no comparison. He is worth everything my whole life, this whole world, it is just nothing compared to knowing him. There is an old hymn that puts this really well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So is following Jesus worth it? Is it worth the cost to my sexuality? Is it worth losing the ability to do as I please? Is what I'm gaining better than what I am losing? In following Jesus, I'm saying no to death to say yes to life. I'm saying no to selfishness to say yes to the selfless one. The path that he leads us on is not always easy, but it refines us. It makes us people who are more like him. It gives us a joy that cannot be stolen by our circumstances and a hope that will light up even the deepest darkness. I am gaining a life both now and forever with this incredible, gracious, compassionate God who is, he will forgive all of my sin. He will heal all of my sickness. He will save me from every trouble and he was going to lead me into a world where there is no more death or sorrow or darkness or fear. I gain the glorious one that is Jesus himself. Is following Jesus worth it? Obviously, I believe that the answer is yes. But that is a question that we all need to answer for ourselves. So we're going to give you a few minutes just to think and chat about that. Oh, I've got another slide, haven't I? Great. You might want to just sit by yourself and process either what you've heard in here or what you've heard throughout the week. Maybe just pray. Maybe just talk to Jesus about whether you think he's worth it, but you may want to do that in groups as well. So if you'd rather sit by yourself, that's completely fine, but if not, get into small groups and have a chat about this question, and then we'll come back for some Q&A in a few minutes.
Let's bring our little conversations to a close. Can we say a quick thank you to Ashley first? I think she served us so well in that. Great job. We want to just recommend a few resources before we get into some questions. A couple of books we've picked out for today, both of which are written by women who are same-sex attracted. And in these books, they tell something of their story, of their own wrestlings with it. And both of them, I would say, we kind of touch on this theme as well of, is following Jesus worth it? One of them is by Rachel Gilson, born again this way. You can't quite see it again then, but it's born again this way, where she talks about her story and lots of kind of just key, uh, I guess, elements of wrestling with faith and sexuality. And this one here, Jackie Hill Perry, Gay Girl, Good God, is written in a really kind of beautiful, poetic way. She does a lot of um, spoken words, Jackie Hill Perry, and a lot of it's kind of autobiographical, isn't it? Her, her story, but as she goes through telling her story, she's also kind of unpacking themes related, including just the beauty of Jesus and that following him is worthwhile. Both those really helpful resources. And as we mentioned every day, our website for the charity we come from, livingout.org, has talks, videos, podcasts, animations, all kind of things. And whatever your questions about faith and sexuality, you'll probably find something that engages with that there. So we'd encourage you to go have a hunt on the website and kind of keep wrestling with your questions there. But for a few minutes now, we're going to take some of your questions. Thank you so much for submitting them on the Slido. We've managed to connect. We've got them. So let's discuss a few of these. Let's start with the top-voted one first. The Bible explains that homosexuality is wrong, but does it ever say why? I think to understand it, we need to think about what the Bible says about sexuality generally, what it says about sex and marriage, and why God has created us as sexual beings. Um, I don't know how well I'll do this in like two minutes, so we'll see how we go. Um, do listen back to Tuesday, Anne's talk, and uh, have a read of Ed Shaw's book, uh, what's it called? Purposeful Sexuality, where he unpacks it a lot better than I'm about to. Um, so in the Bible, you see all the way through that sex and marriage are used as metaphors. They're used as signposts to a bigger story, which is a relationship between God and his people. So you've got the Old Testament prophets who kind of tap into this idea all the time, sometimes in really positive and beautiful ways, and sometimes uh, they'll, they'll use it in a more negative sense. So when the people of God kind of ignore him or walk away from him and worship other gods, that's likened to adultery. God says, it's like you're a wife who's cheated on me. Um, and that, that way of talking about sex and marriage, the way of using them, it continues all the way through to the New Testament. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, which is a really weird thing to say because he's a single guy. He never got married. Um, but his bri- Jesus is God. His bride is the people of God. It's the church. And so you've got this theme continuing all the way through. Book of Revelation, again, cracking book, chapter 19. Um, it talks about what the world is going to look like, this kind of celebration when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. And it talks about it as a wedding feast. And again, you've got Jesus, the groom, marrying his bride, the people of God. So all the way through the Bible, sex and marriage, they are used as metaphors, as signposts to this bigger story, this bigger relationship. And when we understand that, we go, okay, if God has set up human marriage in a way that it mirrors this bigger story, if we change our definition of human marriage and human sexual relationships, if we, if we start messing with the metaphor, it won't do what it's designed to do anymore. Um, and so I think that is a, a big why in, in why God would prohibit, say, homosexual relationships or various other forms of sexual practice that are prohibited in the Bible. I will add an addendum, which is that I think even with 
good explanations, better ones than the ones I've just given. Um, there is still an element of mystery to this. I think, at least for me, I still do. I still do have questions. I still do have days where I'm like, "But God, why?" You know. And I think He's given me enough, and I just asked me to trust Him with the rest. And so the question then it's like the question gets turned back on me, and it's like, "Will I trust God with what I don't understand? Will I trust God with what I don't yet know, and trust that do you know what He's good, and what He has said to me is good, and it is going to lead to my flourishing, and it is the best way to live as a human being?" Um, yeah. I think that's yeah, really good. And that last bit is just as important, actually, as the explanation scripture gives us. It's really helpful. And I was reflecting as you were talking there. I think, actually, it's understanding the why helps us understand some more of why following Jesus is worth it. Because, actually, the Bible helps us understand sex and marriage here and now between humans are just a picture of a greater reality. Or one way to think about it is like the trailer for a film. And, actually, when you get to see the real film, the full feature-length film, you don't think, man, I wish I saw the trailer. Following Jesus is worth it, even if it means never having sex, never getting married, because actually we're just skipping over the picture to the greater reality. So it lovely, it fits actually kind of what we've been talking about today. Another question, a bit about your story. You said that from age 15 to 18, you had an on and off again girlfriend. What advice would you give to a teenage with a go- teenager with a girlfriend but who's trying to be a faithful Christian? Presumably a question from a girl there. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's tough. Um... Advice. What do I wish I'd said to myself back then? Talk to God about it. Like he, he can handle your questions and your doubts and your anger and you can like stand in a field and scream at the sky and he's okay with that. Um, yeah, let your questions drive you to him rather than away because he can take it and he has answers for you. So that's one thing. Um, I, I also, I didn't really talk to anybody else about what was going on. I had a couple of non-Christian friends who asked me a blunt question that I couldn't avoid, but those were the only people who actually knew about this relationship. Uh, no one in my church knew, no one in my youth group knew. And I, looking back, I kind of wish they had. I think they would have been able to help me. Like, some of them might have not really known what to do with me, but others, they, they would have been able to pray for me and pray with me and offer me advice and just be a, a place where I could express some of what I was feeling. So find some good people who love Jesus and who love you and can help you work through all of that. Yeah, that's excellent, excellent. How about this one? If I agree with some biblical views, but not others which my church believes, can I still be a Christian? Yes. We could, we're not here for the next half an hour, so I'll try and be brief. Um, what is a Christian? I think is possibly the best direction to go in here. If a Christian is someone who follows Jesus, like Christian actually means little Christ. They started using it as a slur in Antioch, I think, in the New Testament against these mini Christs who are wandering around trying to be more like Jesus. If that is what a Christian is, then yeah, you can still be a Christian and disagree with what some other people might say about what the Bible says. Um, I think because church is weird, right? Not just because church is weird, but also because you've got this large group of people who wouldn't be interacting with each other if it weren't for Jesus. Like, there's, I, there are so many people in my church, I'm like, I have nothing in common with you except the most important foundational thing in our lives, which is Jesus. So actually, I kind of have everything in common with you. But anyway, um, and so it means that we've got different views on stuff and we've got different opinions and we've got different perspectives and life experiences. We're coming from different places. So I think we should actually expect in church to butt up against some of this stuff where it's like, oh, I seem to think this about this, but you seem to think that. And I think the thing to do with it is if, well, if you can, if it's a a relationship where you have that 
um, option is to maybe just sit down together and open up the Bible and talk about, oh, you're reading this in this way, I'm reading this in that way. Why? What can we learn from each other here? And that takes humility. You need to be able to listen well rather than going in like, right, I'm going to win an argument. If you go in that way, it's never going to work. Um, but I think there is so much opportunity for us to learn from each other and learn from our differences. Um, yeah, and that's better than just disagreeing. That's excellent, yeah. And I'd want to add in, for me, I think here I think about heart attitude. Uh, you could have this situation in two very different heart attitudes. It could be I want to submit myself to what God says in his word, and here's how I'm understanding that. I've thought about that, wrestled with that, studied that, here's the conclusions I've reached. That's very different to I don't like what the Bible says, so even though my church teaches this, I'm ignoring that bit. I don't think that's an option for a Christian because Jesus submits himself to the scripture. He keeps going back to the Old Testament scripture. He shows us this book is the word of God. It's trustworthy. What it means to be a Christian is to submit yourself to Jesus, including his word. We don't have the choice just to brush away bits we don't like. But actually, we do want to yeah, foster good relationship and good conversations where actually we're all seeking to bring ourselves under scripture and actually we're wrestling with that and maybe reaching different places in that. One final one, we just got a minute there for Q&A, so a quick answer. Can you have a gay relationship without sex? I think the question there is actually, would a gay relationship be acceptable to God if it's a non-sexual relationship? And he wants a quick answer. Um, no. There's your quick answer. Um, let, me, let me unpack it. You've still got it. 50 seconds left. Great, okay. I feel the time pressure, and I'm wasting it by saying I feel the time pressure. Um, so... I'm going to use the word marriage because um, that's the kind of language that the Bible uses. Just like culturally, there was dating was not the way that we do dating. So I'm just going to talk about marriage and singleness just for clarity. Um, when we talk about marriage, we are talking about a lifelong exclusive commitment, a covenant. Part of a marriage relationship is sex. Sex is the only context for marriage. Um, but that doesn't that like sex is not the only thing that makes a marriage a marriage or that makes a, a romantic relationship a romantic relationship and so it is not just gay sex that god i'm saying god has a problem with it's not just gay sex that god like dislikes and calls us away from it is that whole relationship that is under under question um and so God has said the context for marriage, for this lifelong, exclusive, faithful commitment covenant to another human being, that has to be one man, one woman. I mean, there are many married people who are like opposite sex couples who are not having sex for one reason or another. Like, that just, that happens in life sometimes. Uh, but they're still married. They're st you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say, oh, you're not married anymore because you've stopped having sex. Um, it is about this wider relationship. I waffled. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and I just want to add in, this one makes me want to remember actually about close same-sex friendship is absolutely something God honors and values and wants us to have. And kind of when people say to me, well, why don't you have a, a gay relationship but just not have a sexual relationship? I kind of say, well, that should just be friendship. And actually, I want to have lots of close friendships. And I do have that, actually. I'm, I don't need a romantic relationship without sex to try and get something just within God's bounds because actually friendship is a wonderful gift of intimate relationship I get to enjoy with both men and women. It's a real blessing to me. With sense, making sure we uh, kind of end each of these sessions just with a moment of pause and response. We're talking about big topics, real life topics, things that are for us might be personal, for our friends, for friends, for family members might be personal. And we think it's just really important to pause, to reflect, and to allow the Spirit of God just to speak to us and help us before we leave. So, actually, it's going to lead us to a moment yeah. of response as we come to near to the end today. Beautiful. Um, so. For some of you, you may 
need to go away and weigh the cost of following Jesus. Uh, and I think that is a good thing to do. Jesus himself tells us to do it, count the cost. That's completely fine. But for others of you, maybe you've done that and you're at a point of going, yeah, do you know what? I think he's worth it. I think I want to follow him. I think there might also be some people in here who just want to recommit to Jesus in some way. That You feel that you've taken your eyes off him and you've, been, uh, you've fallen in love with the things of the world instead of with him. And just maybe today, this week, you're going, oh, he's better. He's better and I want to live my life for him and I want to be all in with him. Um, so if anyone in the room is in either of those two camps, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up and we're going to pray together. And I'm asking you to stand just because I think it's a really helpful, like, physical marker for you, for God, for anyone around you who's come with you to, like, you can look back on and say, yeah, I drew a line in the sand there. Um, so I'm not trying to embarrass you by asking you to stand. Uh, so if anybody in the room is in one of those two positions, if you want to commit yourself to Jesus again in some way, could you stand up for me? Thank you, guys. Cool. If you're still sat down, don't check out. Pray for the people who've stood. Maybe just pray for yourself if that's something you want to do. Uh, but I'm going to pray with and over these guys, and then we will pray together at the end. Holy Spirit, you are so good. They're in these hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for how you save us. Take a second just to say sorry to him for anything that he brings to mind, any sins in the, in the past or even the present, things he wants you to repent of, to turn away from. And now tell him that you want to follow him. Ask him to come into your life, to come into your heart, to help you and strengthen you as you do this. Beautiful. If the rest of you could stand, I just want to pray for all of us as we close. Jesus, you're so much better than the rest. You're so much better. So much better. Pray you'd show us more of your goodness. Show us more of your beauty. Help us to read your word, to develop a daily practice, a daily habit, and to fall in love with it. Help us to hear your voice, to learn what it sounds like when you call us to go one way or a different way. Help us to love your church, to love your, your body, the people that you have brought together to challenge us and encourage us and to do this life together. In all of it, Jesus, would you be speaking to us and through us that you are better, that you are worth everything. Make us people whose lives demonstrate that, God. Pray for these beautiful humans as they have their last day of New Day. Would you keep speaking to them? Would you keep transforming them, encouraging them, challenging them where that's needed? Would you bless them, God? Would you bless them as they pack up their tents and head home tomorrow? Would you bless them in their lives moving forwards? I pray that what you have deposited in them this week would be stuff that they carry. They wouldn't get left behind here at the showground or like fall out of their pockets in a week's time, but that they would be able to carry it for the rest of their lives. Amen.